Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. When I think back to the early days of the pandemic and those moments when we started to grasp the severity of what was happening, a particular date stands out. March 12, 2020, the night Broadway theaters went dark. Around the same time, movie theaters closed as well. And while there has been little to replace live theater, many of us have gotten used to streaming movies at home, very used to it. Today, we're talking about the future of the movie industry and Broadway. Later, we'll talk with Pamela McClintock, senior film writer at The Hollywood Reporter, She's covered the movie industry for decades. But first, I'll be talking with Bob Wankel, CEO of the Schubert Foundation, and perhaps the most powerful business person on Broadway today. In the history of the Broadway theater, there are a few organizations as storied as the Schubert's. Founded by the three Schubert brothers in the late 1880s, the Schubert organization owns 17 of Broadway's 41 theaters, and Broadway is big business bringing in billions each year and employing nearly 100,000 people. Despite how powerful he is in the business, Bob Wankel says that while growing up on Long Island, his family didn't go to see Broadway shows that often. Occasionally, but I certainly would not say I was a theater rat. And I came to Schubert because I worked for the public accounting firm that audited the Schubert organization, and that's how I got the job. And that's how I've been here for 46 years. And you've outlasted everybody. I have outlasted you've everybody. Outlasted That's everybody. correct. Well, of course, I don't, I don't want to make light of the fact that your colleague passed away, Phil Smith. We're very yes, sad just to recently, hear that. Yeah. Great guy. Somebody yep. who I've met many times, and he was a lovely guy. When you come to the Schubert organization, you started with them when? 1975. Now, 
Explain to people the significance or the distinction of the Schubert organization, meaning it's different from the Niederlanders. It's different from Jude Jamson. It has a similar mission to make money and to produce Broadway shows, but it's different how? It's different because it's owned by the Schubert Foundation. The Schubert brothers, when they died, they left all of their assets after they took care of the family to the Schubert Foundation. And the Schubert Foundation is dedicated to the preservation of the arts in this country, And we give away $32 million a year or so, or or last year we gave away $32 million to 530 not-for-profits across the country. Mm -hmm. Now, let's just confine ourselves to Broadway in New York. The houses that you own, they're not retail spaces where people show up with a check in their hand and they just rent the space. You want your tenants, you want to partner with them to make sure the people that are in there are successful, correct? Correct. Describe to me the process by which the Schubert organization vets creatively the prospective tenants. We actually decide what shows are going to play in our houses. Plenty of producers come to us, but in the end, we get to decide which shows we're going to book. And that process in recent years is being done by our creative VP and myself. Does the Schubert organization try to find and hire people who have the greatest acumen as to what's going to work on Broadway and what's not? Let's face it. It's very challenging what works on Broadway and what doesn't. You could go in with the best possible creative team and the best possible title, and it just doesn't fly. And that's happened many times that shows just don't work. I mean, obviously, it's always wonderful to be able to book a show that's a big hit in the UK because you already know it has an audience. And even though when you transfer them, what worked in the UK doesn't necessarily work here. We're looking, obviously, to have shows that are going to run. Sometimes we're dealing with creative people and we want to give people a chance and we want to give new producers a chance. So there's lots of reasons why we book shows. Not always that we think everything is going to be a hit, but we own the most playhouses. And so if you have a play, most of the people come to Schubert because we have all of the smaller houses, even though there's many musicals in some of those playhouses now. When you mention the pipeline, if you will, between London and New York, are those negotiations usually pretty standard in terms of who's doing who a favor. When Andrew Lloyd Webber is printing money over there and calls you, is Andrew Lloyd Webber doing you a favor? Or are you doing him a favor? Or is it mutually uh, back-scratching here? I'm going to say it's mutual. I mean, we've we've enjoyed the benefit of most of Andrew's shows here in New York. And we are certainly talking to Andrew about his new show, which is going to open in the UK in May or June, called Cinderella. We obviously are talking to them about the show for New York. And for people that aren't the pillars of that whole world, when others are coming to you to do shows, what is the basic understanding about who gets your attention? Is it all about relationships? Well, relationships are important. But as I say, we like to give new producers an opportunity. And since we have the most houses, we have the luxury of doing that. And we've certainly booked many a show from new producers. And we are focused on that for when we come back to bring in some new shows with some new producers. So it's a combination. It's a combination of availability of the buildings. It's when the show is going to be available, what size house they need. There's a lot of factors that go into the decision. But, you know, variety, we like to go across the board. I must say, as you're talking, and I'm thinking about this idea of houses and sizes, and people would say to me, uh, we would do a show 
the first time I was on Broadway was to do Loot. It was my first time on Broadway, and they said to me, oh, now wonderful for you. You're in the music box, which is just the most wonderful theater. And then when I did Streetcar, they were like, and you're in the Barrymore, just the perfect theater for the for Williams. <laughs> and everybody's sense of the houses and the individual identities of the houses, do you find that's true? Does each of those houses have their own identity? They do. And many directors and creative teams, they would prefer a particular house that they believe works for their show. Much more challenging these days because the demand for theaters has been so great. So therefore, many people will take houses, not their first choice. But Music Box is one of the great musical and playhouse theaters, as is the Barrymore. And you played the Schoenfeld too, as I recall. So you've played some really good houses. You played the Schoenfeld. Now that you mention that, I must say the reason I love Broadway is you do tap into this history And you do experience, especially when I was younger and I was more wide-eyed about it all, and you do come across, not a lot, but there's enough characters, as you well know, colorful characters in the Broadway world, none more so than Jerry. Yep. He was one of my great mentors. I'll only tell one Jerry story here, maybe two, which was when I got sick doing Streetcar, and Jerry would call me up and go, my boy, how are you feeling? And I'd say, ah, I'm really sick, Jerry. I had the flu. I missed three shows one weekend. And, and I didn't realize, you know, I mean, I knew, but I didn't own the urgency of when you're one of the leads in a show and you're out of the show. And Jerry calls up, he goes, I was wondering if I should send over one of my doctors to examine you to make sure you're okay. And I said, oh, no, Jerry, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I think I'll be okay by Tuesday. I'll be back Tuesday. I'm really sick. All right, my boy, you get to bed and drink plenty of orange juice and get your rest. And he was such a character. (laughs) My next question for you is how Broadway has changed in your mind, which is a very broad question. It seems to me that some of the canon, if you will, the real classics of drama especially, and some of the musical theater have been assigned perhaps to the not-for-profit world, that it's not necessarily as, as easy to bring Iceman cometh, even if you have the real piston in the engine there with Nathan or someone like that to play that great role, that a lot of these real war horses in the, uh, of the dramatic theater are not as represented on Broadway as they used to be because they're too risky. Do you agree or no? When you put a big star in them and they play for 20 weeks, they do really well. And we've certainly had all of those classics in our buildings over the years. Mm-hmm. It's all about since so many people have seen the show, it's about the star power that is performing it. And those are shows that require great performers. So they've done very well. I mean, the not-for-profits do some of them, but uh, to get the star power... Is that the problem, though? Do you guys ever sit down when you're mulling over who's going to come in with what show and why? Do you mull over, you're going to take a chance on somebody in the lead who isn't necessarily as big a star as you might like for your comfort level? It depends on the show. There are shows that don't need star power. It's more about the show. And then there's shows that... The star is an insurance policy, and everybody likes insurance policies because the cost of even doing a revival of one of those classics has really gotten to be very expensive, and it's only going to run for 16 or 20 weeks, and everybody wants to recoup their money. The star power is important to certain shows, and other shows create stars. I'll use Music Man and Jackman as an example. Sometimes a show is announced with a star, and I'll sit there and think, my God, people still want to go see that show. They do, but they like the fact that it has your Jackman in it. It's going to make a big difference, and it will be, you know, a giant mega hit. Good advance on that show? 
Absolutely. Yeah, they're coming back in, what, after the first of the year? They're uh, scheduled to start performances in December. Most of our shows are coming back. Now, is there been a change in the economics of Broadway? Like, do you sit there and go, it's more expensive, these tickets are more expensive, we, we can take less risks because of the demographic of the audience? There's no question the tickets are more expensive. But the cost of producing is really very expensive. We're 60, 65% labor. The cost of doing new musicals is anywhere between 15 and $20 million to put it on the stage. Plays are between four and a half and $5 million to put it up for 16 weeks. And then the operating costs will kill you, what they, you need to gross in order to pay the bills. So it's expensive, but there's no better form than a live show and the interaction between the performers and the audience. It's why our attendance is booming. We've had record attendance for a number of years now. So everybody wants to come to theater. They're doing it on the road. The road theater business is through the roof also. People want human interaction when they go out for entertainment. This is kind of an obvious remark, especially to somebody like you, but I find that there just is no comparison to being there live and seeing that coming out of someone's body live. No, there's no, that's why that human interaction, I mean, you get a different performance every night. Now, <laughs> you sure can. <laughs> well, you're, the, the performers are playing to a different audience every night. Now, one thing that I'm wondering from you, how it's changed or not changed, is the significance of reviews and press. Of course, the Times is one example. And the Tony Awards themselves, those are important components, positive Times, positive Tony nominations. Everybody wants to get great notices because great notices help sell shows. But that's why people spend a great deal of money marketing the shows up front, because if you build a big enough audience, then you can let the word of mouth really be the key factor in selling shows. And I think word of mouth is probably one of the most important reasons people go to see shows. You've got to please the consumer. You've got to put on a good show. And the consumer has to like it, and the consumer has to say, you must go see Mr. Baldwin. Is the Times as significant as it used to be? It's not as much as it is anymore. Why do you think? Well, because the readership is, people get so much of their news and stuff online and social media and mm -hmm. all of these things. Everybody wants a great New York Times review because it's still the New York Times. Sure. It's still considered the cultural paper. And when they give a great notice, it usually shows up in the box office instantly. As far as the Tonys are concerned, do you see where you would like to see changes in how the Tonys are presented, awarded, calculated? Well, no, we seem to think the system is pretty good. You do? We do. You do? We do. We think that there's enough voters, and the administration committee and the nominating committee have spent a lot of time and focus on that, and uh, the integrity of the awards, are we think, are good. And the diversity of that committee and the diversity of that pool of people, is that something you'd like to see change? It has been changing. It has? Yes, absolutely. The diversity has been being worked on, and no, the diversity has changed. We think the, the nominating committee is a really a very good, distinguished group of people. In my life, March 12th of last year was 9-11. That was the day everything shut down. I was doing a TV show. We were in rehearsals. We shut down. They said, go home. Take me through the thinking. Did you go in stages? Did you think, oh, we're going to reopen in June, July, September? Were you stumbling along thinking? Or did you know, did you have an access to information, government, whatever, because there's such a, so much money involved with your business, that this was going to be the long haul? 
No, in actuality, when we closed on March 12th, our initial closure was for four weeks through April 12th, and then we extended it. We certainly did not realize that we would be closed for a year or probably a year and a half before we come back. So when it didn't happen for July 4th, we focused on Labor Day, then we focused on the holidays. But obviously, as corona got worse across the country, because of how many people we put in the buildings, that we were concerned that it would take a while before we could come back. And so we were the first to go down and we'll probably be amongst the last to reopen because we need to open at almost capacity. We can't really deal with social distancing. The economics of our business don't work. Right. I got a, an email. I was People reached out to me. I was amazed at the level of participation and energy surrounding a benefit to save the West Bank Cafe. And where all the great network of Broadway-related, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's Orso, Joe Allen, Des Artistes, and Dutois, all the great Broadway saloons and restaurants and so forth, all of them struggling and hurting desperately, including the staffs of all these facilities. No question. And I was wondering, did the Schubert Foundation, was there any discussion about giving money to these people who worked for you? No, the foundation doesn't do those kind of grants, right. as right. I say. It's focused on the performing arts. I mean, obviously, we the industry has worked hard to help many people within the deal. And the Actors Fund has been a great support to those that are really in trouble. We've worked on getting government packages. I think you're going to see the new CARES package is going to be very helpful. Mm -hmm. For the first time, the package is going to support the commercial theater. The commercial theater has never received federal grants before. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we are concerned about getting everybody back. And we've worked as a community to try... We've got so many task force, everything going through the Broadway League because the whole community is on it. We're very anxious to bring everybody back. And if you've been in Times Square, you will see without Broadway, Times Square is just effectively closed. It's a very small part of New York City, but it's 15% of its economy because we bring 15 million people to the theater. They spend a great deal of money. They go to the hotels, the restaurants. We directly and indirectly support 97,000 people. Mm -hmm. So Broadway is important. Many people don't realize that in New York, the real pillars of the economy, you know, Wall Street and the financial markets, the other is the real estate market, and the third is the arts, and that includes museums and all of the mm -hmm. attractions that are in New York. I was wondering, with that in mind, because Broadway is such a huge piston in the economic engine of the city, how much cooperation, how much assistance, how much attention did the state government give you? Obviously, we need the governor to sign off in order for us to reopen because he has to agree to our protocols or dictate various protocols. So it's important for the state to work with the state. You probably have seen they have this new pop-up program to bring the arts back to New York, mm -hmm. which are going to start in April. And so that was done by the state. So obviously, we will work with the state in terms of protocols. I mean, our point is to bring back our cast crews and obviously our customers in a safe building so that we want them to come back and we want them to come back in big numbers. We're going to do whatever we can to make people feel safe in returning to our buildings. The Schubert Foundation's CEO, Bob Wankel. 
If you like conversations with extraordinarily successful business people, go to our archives for my talk with Starbucks' Howard Schultz, who says he never predicted the specificity of people's coffee orders. I'm told there's 85,000 gyrations to customization at Starbucks. I never imagined that customers would start telling people exactly what they wanted. But I think one of the drivers of our success has been our ability to customize what you want when you want it. Our original business plan when I was raising the original money was 100 stores. And I was having a terrible time. And I, I didn't have enough money to reprint the business plan. So I crossed out 100 and wrote 75. I mean, that's how tight things were. Hear more of my conversation with Howard Schultz at heresthething.org. After the break, Bob Wankel talks about Broadway's role in helping New York bounce back from tough economic times in the past. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The governor of New York, working with health officials, will determine when Broadway theaters will reopen. But Bob Wankel says it'll be a while. Theaters operating at reduced capacity simply can't cover the costs of putting on a show each night. The governor did agree to reopen theaters with 33% of capacity, 100 people or 150 people max. Now, obviously, a Broadway theater can't open with 100 people or 150, but some of the smaller theaters can. We're hoping that as the vaccine rolls out better and the cases keep going down, which they have been doing quite nicely over the last few weeks, that those restrictions will be eased. I mean, we don't see masks going away in the theater for at least through the end of the year or or longer. That will depend on protocols and concerns and safety. We have the same concerns over our cast and crew. I mean, the performers will be, you know, they, as you know, you've been in a number of Broadway theaters. There's not exactly a lot of luxury space there. People are working closely and obviously the performers cannot wear masks while they're performing. So we, we are concerned. We've been working closely with all of the unions and the guilds. I would imagine backstage, you've got to be even more diligent because if the cast goes down, if anybody gets sick back there, then you're right back to square one. Yeah, We don't want to have to open and then reclose, and so obviously the safety. And the science is getting better. The testing is getting better. So hopefully the vaccine will be the real game changer that if they continue to roll it out and 70 to 90 percent of those will take it, that will is a game changer and will make people feel comfortable. So the COVID aside, there's also the concurrent economic damage to the city. We've had guests on the show to discuss the comparisons to the 1970s and the last time the city was laid so low economically. What are the comparisons you think back to 1975 and the last financial crisis in terms of what happens to Broadway when we're in the period of this intense financial crisis? What happened back then? Well, 75 was when Broadway was just coming back. A chorus line moved into the Schubert Theater, and that was a game changer. I think the last problem was really 9-11 when we shut down, but we came back in two days. And the city and the mayor said, go to a Broadway show, go to a Broadway show. That's all he said. Every press conference, every day, go to a Broadway show. And it made a difference. And New Yorkers came out and Broadway did extraordinarily well after 9-11. I do believe that people will come back to the theater in big numbers as long as they feel safe. People who, once they feel comfortable, will, of course, come to New York for that thing you can only get in New York or or at that level. Someone said to me, what do you love most about New York? I said, you close your eyes at 8 o'clock at night and you know that a curtain's coming up on the greatest performers in the world, all on stages across the city, ballet, opera, symphony, musical, drama, poetry, you name it. I mean, when 8 o'clock... The curtain comes up and it's New York. It's New York. The greatest of the greatest are here. And people will come to avail themselves of that. However, a striking number of people are leaving the city. When we have an economic crisis here, do you think that there's a core of support for the arts in New York that you're worried about them leaving? 
we are the capital of the arts in many ways. And, and I think that people will come back. Yes. I don't think as many people that said they would never come back to New York. They're going to come back to New York. It's still the heart, Alec. When you live in New York, the sickness is, the crazy thing is that when you live in New York, that's your town. And it works for you. And you know where to go to get your coffee. And you know where to go to get your egg salad and your bagel. I mean, I remember in the early days when I first lived there and I didn't have enough money to really appreciate it. And finally, I dragged somebody to an event. And we go see some symphony. And the symphony starts and the tears are running down my face. We're at Carnegie Hall watching, you know, Mahler or something. And my friend said, why do you stress yourself to go from your home, you're in your living room, and you're getting dressed, and you get in a car, and you travel here, and you stand in line, and you go and you sit down. She said, why do you put yourself through this? And I said, what is a greater act of self-robbery than to live in New York and not avail yourself of the things in New York itself? My friend had the, the silly line. He said, that's like opening your Christmas presents and playing with the boxes. <laughs> he said, New York, if you live here and you don't avail yourself of the things you're here, you might as well move out. Well, as you know, just wait till you start bringing all your kids to a Broadway musical and watch them light up. I, it's so amazing. I just want to say, I don't think anyone in the entertainment business has my heartfelt sympathy more than you do, Bob, because you became the head of the most prominent theatrical enterprise in history just as COVID shut it down. Bob, what can you say? What a nightmare, and I can't wait for this to be over. I can't wait for this to be over. Listen, the glory will be when it comes back, <laughs> and it will come back. People will realize how much they miss the arts. They miss the arts. They do. We know that. We know how much they miss it. Bob Wankel, CEO of the Schubert Organization. While Broadway theaters are likely to be one of the last entertainment venues to reopen, movie theaters are already selling tickets at reduced capacity. Pamela McClintock is the senior film writer at The Hollywood Reporter. She says that COVID-19 accelerated the challenges that movie theaters were facing even before the pandemic. Attendance has been falling for years, right? But prices have gone up. So every year we have a record year, but that belies the fact that attendance has actually dropped. So they were already struggling when COVID hit. And the, and the struggling was because of streaming? I think the struggling is for numerous reasons. Gaming. So completely different media has taken their attention. Right. Or they don't want to pay that much to go. Because the night out at the movies, right, you have to pay a babysitter. Let's say you're a couple, mm -hmm. you have to pay a babysitter. You have to pay for concessions. It can easily cost like $100 when all is said mm -hmm. and done. Right. You know, Lorne Michaels once joked with me. He said that the cartoon he envisioned was two young men are standing there. And one has an iPhone and the other one says, what are you watching? And the guy holding the phone says, Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> oh you know, on an iPhone. That we've completely lost, we've completely lost the uh, magic of cinema as we know it. 40 feet across, 20 feet high. Do you think that's true? I think it's in jeopardy. And I think that people will want to get out of the house when the pandemic comes back, but I think it will be difficult. Mm -hmm. Difficult how? Difficult, whereas, let's say there was 25% of the population that went to the movies once a year, right? Maybe somebody like me who's a little bit older, doesn't like crowds. And then with the pandemic, will I ever return? Frequent moviegoers have always made up the biggest chunk of the audience, and you know, that may not change, but the number of people that, let's say, go to the movies once or twice a year, if that changes, theaters are in a lot of trouble. Well, 
I, I think there's a couple of points that could be made about this principle, among which is that I think people are going to the movies less, especially grown-ups, because there's not much there for them. Right. You know, it's like a diamond shape. You know, at the top is great, at the bottom is pure crap, but in the middle, the, the thick middle of it is all forgettable. It's nothing that can't be perfectly enjoyed on a computer or on a flat screen in your home. Do you think that's correct? I think there's an argument to be made that actually mid-range movies may prosper post-pandemic. Because I think people will want to get out of the house. And a movie like Nomadland does look beautiful on a big screen. But the question is, will Hollywood, you know, leave those movies in theaters or just put them on streaming, right? And that's to your point. Will the studios provide that product to the theaters? Well, I mean, I wonder also, what might the changes be in film exhibition? Like, how many theaters serve booze now? I don't know the percentage, but I would imagine... Not a lot. Right. I would imagine maybe more will, right? I, I, I wonder what are the changes that they're going to now allow? Right. The movie industry is going to go to the government's local or whatever and say, hey, man, we need a little help here to get people back. Let's open a bar. Yeah. There is an argument to be made that the more luxury cinemas will do better than the non-luxury cinemas so. in the post-pandemic so. world. I mean, I wonder if movies will creep toward Broadway, where the tickets become so expensive that it becomes an experience you don't you just don't have that often. The, the MPA just released their annual movie-going report. And what is your analysis of that? Well, this speaks to your fact about mobile. It says, last year, for the first time globally, streaming subscribers hit $1 billion. You know, just exploded. And it says here that more than 85% of children... And more than 55% of adults were watching movies and TV shows on their mobile devices, mm. which is crazy. The idea of watching anything on a phone is just preposterous to me. What about you? Here you are covering this quadrant of the business. How do you consume movies and TV? I really like the biggest screen I can get in the home. I'm of the age and the generation. The idea of watching something on a phone is just insane to me. I have no interest. Unless I was desperate and I had no other resources. You know, when you said that the business wasn't doing that well before the COVID and that the prices were going up, but the ticket sales were going down, so they had record sales, they were all doctored because the prices were right. manipulated. When you get into the COVID period, we see these changes. Right. We see these changes that are going to have an impact on festivals and marketing. They're going to have an impact on exhibition. And I want to ask you about that specifically, which is that when Warner's announced, when they said, we're going to stream, what was it, Wonder Woman? Uh, yes. Describe what happened with that. Why was it a shock? There were some movies that were getting delayed again and again and again. Wonder Woman was one of them. Delayed from being exhibited in the normal way, theatrically. Yes, because, you know, when, the, when COVID first hit, everyone thought, oh, we'll be back in two weeks. Right. Or we'll be back in a month. Or, okay, so we'll move this movie again. And so finally with Wonder Woman, they talked to the exhibitors and they said, we want to do this plan where we release it in the cinemas that are open and on HBO Max on Christmas Day. And the exhibitors were okay with that because they need product. But then Warner Brothers rocked the town a few weeks later when announcing they were going to release their entire 2021 slate on HBO Max and in cinemas. And people went insane. Did that violate a contract they had with the exhibitors? It doesn't violate the contract, but it sort of strains the goodwill. 
So there was no contract the exhibitors had with the studios to guarantee that they had the first crack at the release. No, but in past times, if a studio did that, the theater would just say, we're not playing it. Take a walk. But now theaters are in such a quandary because they need product. So they're willing to take it, even if it's debuting on streaming, but it's still a difficult proposition. I know that here on Long Island, the Hamptons Film Festival, which is the one I'm heavily involved with, like other festivals, no doubt, everything's been upended. But, you know, out here, we went and bought a couple of these inflatable screens. Oh. And for people who don't know how this works, you go, you find a place out here. We have one benefactor, someone who's on our board, accessed the parking field of a private school out here, a big field that they own. They have a big piece of property, several acres. And we took their decent-sized parking lot. They put up the screen there. And then you get a piece of equipment you buy that beams electronically the sound into the radio of your car. And you dial onto a low frequency on the band, and you get the sound for the movie in your car. Right. And you have to just have to turn it on the FM radio when you're there. So we have everything we need. We have a limit of 100 cars, let's say. Let's say each car brings at least two or maybe four people. So we have 150, maybe a couple hundred people coming to each screening, which is for us is decent. We're not out to make any money. It's not a revenue source for us, but it's all just about offering some programming, you know, while we can during the COVID. So we did that. It worked fairly well. Then we wondered to ourselves, is it going to stay that way? What are the things, like I talked about the alcohol thing, and the thing, right. what are the things that are happening that are going to remain? Did HBO, did Time Warner say that as soon as the COVID's over, they're going to go back? Or are they going to keep it this way? They're saying they're going to go back, but no one is quite sure whether they really mean it, right? What That's, do you think? What's in their interest? I think it's too early to say. I think it depends on how quickly we rebound and get back to normal. But I think drive-ins, which is what you're essentially talking about in terms of what you did, I think they will stay in fashion for like a couple of years. You've been covering this aspect of the business for how long? Almost 15 years. What are some of the seismic changes you've seen in this, this world? It's funny, one seismic change, and I don't even remember what year this was, but I just watched it again. It involves you. And it shows me how much the kind of movies that are playing in theaters are have changed, which was that movie Malice. Mm. I don't remember what year you made that, but... 1992, we shot it. Right, but it was that... Think about it. There was all those kind of adult drama thrillers that you don't see anymore in theaters. The middle movie left. Yes. We used to joke and say the $35, $40 million movie died. Right. So so movies now are $5 million or $205 million. Right. And everything in between. You know, when you, like when Nancy Myers did It's Complicated, and I did that movie with Meryl. When we did the movie It's Complicated, and it was, you know, whatever the cost was, $80 million for a spoken word comedy. No thrill, no action, no nothing. And that's the kind of movie that, uh, one of the last of its breed, you know, that, that one kind of got in there somehow. But all those movies like Malice and things like that, yeah. they died to make way for Mission Impossible That type of movie, that big budget action thriller, has squeezed everybody else out. Or you'd have the very small movie like Nomadland. Is that what your experience has been? Yeah, absolutely. It's gotten to the point where you have the big blockbusters, and then once in a while you'll have a breakout, and then you see the power of, you know, the big screen experience because it becomes a water cooler movie and everyone has to see it. Like Crazy Rich Asians was like that, but it's it's very rare anymore. Pamela McClintock, senior film writer at The Hollywood Reporter. 
If you're enjoying this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Pamela McClintock and I wonder if there is any living filmmaker who can restore the power of a theatrical release. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Before the pandemic, films were usually released exclusively in theaters before being available for streaming. However, the pandemic has created a new set of challenges for studios as well. In December, Warner Brothers announced 
it'll release its entire 2021 slate of projects in theaters and streaming on HBO Max at the same time. Despite the shockwaves this caused in Hollywood, Pamela McClintock says the collapse of the theatrical release window started years ago. It's called one word, Netflix. Right. Because Netflix came along and, you know, can go to a film festival, which I know you attend a lot of and know about the markets, and can spend $50 million on a movie. So they can just outbuy all the small distributors. Right. I don't want to disparage Netflix because, you know, they, for people who don't really appreciate it, I'd love to get your take on this because of your knowledge of distribution. You know, one day, there's no market for their product. This includes syndicated TV thrives because there's nowhere else to go with the product. Right. If I have a library of episodes of Friends or Seinfeld, I'm going to send that to the affiliates around the country to rebroadcast that. And that's the secondary market for this abundance of all this TV because there's nowhere else to go. Right. Then when someone comes up with Netflix and they say, you can stay home and watch it on demand. Whenever you want, the on-demand thing is critical, obviously. Yeah. You can watch it on demand. Then all hell breaks loose. But the, the thing for me is that once TV got that beachhead in people's homes, like it was like the fireplace, it was a gathering place. TV has thrived on the fact that you didn't have to leave your couch. I recall one company tested this in a kind of a C-level market somewhere, Dayton, Ohio or something. It was like a small city. Before the movie comes on, it says, are you hungry? Click yes. <laughs> type in your zip code. Click enter. Click what type of food you want. Greek, Asian, Japanese, Italian, pizza. Click which one. Enter. Here's a list of the following restaurants in your area that deliver that food. Type in your order. Click send. <laughs> Give them your credit card information. Put in the gratuity. Movie begins. You're watching the movie. Bing bong, the food arrives. Press pause. Go to the door, get the food, come back. While you're watching the movie, press pause. This is the one that really killed me. Press pause. The A-list actress is coming through the door of the hotel with a dress on. Press pause. Click on to the dress. <gasps> Do you like that dress? Oh, yeah. I, I love that gasp of yours. That was priceless. But click on the dress. The car pulls up. Matthew McConaughey gets out of the car. Click the car. The following is a list of dealerships in your area that sell that car. Oh, my God. The dress... <laughs> The shoes, the car, all of it. Like you go shopping while you're watching a movie. Now, I found that chilling. The people that own the companies now are a different breed of people. Meaning, when you have these conglomerates that own these entertainment companies who want these companies to perform, they've made an investment in these companies. It's they want money. Right. And they know there's a lot of money there, potentially. They don't care what goes in there as long as it makes money, as long as it pays the rent. There are no creative people at the top of the networks or the studios now. They're accounting people, marketing people. They're executives from companies who've been moved over where it's all monetizing money, money, money. Do you agree? You just have to look at who owns the companies, right? AT&T owns Warner Brothers. Comcast, a cable company, owns NBC Universal, right? Sony has been owned forever by... Like, electronics company. Yeah, electronics company. But yeah, and I think the race to streaming, everybody wants more subscribers. How do you get more subscribers? You put more movies on your service or more series. So the question is, where will the pressure be in terms of where you put your movies? The thing about Netflix, as we all remember, they started by sending you a DVD in the mail. 
Yes. Remember when the beginning of that Netflix was Blockbuster meets FedEx. <laughs> Blockbuster meets UPS. Don't leave your house. Here's the envelope. You mail it back to us. That seems uh, like something out of the 1950s now. Doesn't it seem like the big turning point was the idea of putting a whole series on at one time? Binging. Binging. All 10 episodes versus... Why do you think people want to binge? Why? I think if you're into a story, you don't want to wait a week. Right. You're ready for it. You're ready for it. And Netflix doesn't have any ads. I mean, you know the difference, I'm sure, when you watch broadcast TV. If you watch it anymore, you're like, whoa, look at all those ads. I forgot what that world was like. I wonder if people like Scorsese, for example, who've been highly critical of streaming films. And will the Scorseses of the world be able to say, hey, you got to show my movie in a movie theater only for a number of months. I'm going to have a wide release, and I'm going to say, you can't have my movie if you stream it within six months or three months or whatever they think is right for them from the theatrical. I wonder if that's going to happen. Or they're going to force them to keep the movie on screens. Who do you think has that power? What director is big enough to have that power? I don't think anybody has that power. I'm, I'm just being fanciful here, but yeah. I'm wondering what is at all possible what is in any way possible to lure people back to movie screens and to movie theaters? Like you said, people want to get out. You know, it's the same thing with movie theaters and, and home screening. And I wonder what the casualty of that is, is that the concentration that it takes to really enjoy a movie is gone. I want to digest that film the way the director intended me to digest that film. Yes. To sit and engage with that, with that film in a dark room and nobody talks. And I just, you beam at me what you want me to take in. And I take it in. Right. And I breathe it in real time. And we don't press pause and all this other crap. I wonder if the death of that has influenced the kinds of stuff we have on. Like right now, I think the content of a lot of TV is very violent. There are shows I binge. I'll name you one example. And I don't want to name names. When they wrote themselves into a corner, they just started killing people. I wonder if research they're doing is prompting them to make shows that it doesn't really matter whether you pause it or not. <laughs> You don't have to be that engaged with it in the first place. Does that make any sense to you at all? Or am I crazy? No, I think that makes sense. And I think for me personally, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there's some movies that all it is is buildings falling down and lots of noise. And it doesn't really captivate me. You know, it doesn't catch my attention. And you mean that not as a sign of your age, myself included, which is if we get older, we want something a little more thoughtful, a little more... I think age for sure has a part of it, but I just, you know... There's a series of movies that are incredibly popular, <laughs> and I can't, for the life of me, can't ever watch them because they're so loud and so destructive. So we talked about how the impact of the uh, quarantine has had on movie festivals, which are, of course, our big markets. Many people don't understand, who are not in the business, that when you go to a film festival, we don't just sit around and eat wine and cheese and kiss each other and take pictures with each other and watch each other's films, they're there to sell films. It's business. It's a pure market. Some festivals more market than festival, quite frankly. Yep. And that has been severely damaged by the COVID. And the festivals have had to use their thinking caps to get themselves out of that, which the one I work with, they've done, very, they've done fairly well. Although it's still horrible, the drag on the business. Number two, critics. And what I'm wondering is, you go to a movie and you have seated with their popcorn and their raisinets and everything and their drinks 
a crowd of the age-appropriate demographic and the Batman movie comes on and they have nine different trailers before the Batman <laughs> comes on. They have a whole 20 minutes of trailers coming on, or it seems, it certainly feels that way, oh, yeah. of trailers, all for movies of the same ilk, which is just violent, violent, men punching other men in the face, them getting punched out of windows and falling down the sides of skyscrapers, violent movies, one after the other. However, this is marketing. You got that crowd there. That's your crowd. They're, they paid to see a Batman movie. While we have that captive audience, let's tell them what else is coming. How has the COVID affected marketing of films and, and advertising of films? You kind of hit the nail on the head. Trailers, in-theater trailers, are your most important source of advertising. That's what I've been told, yeah. That's been gone. And then what's number two is sports, right? So sports are have been off TV. So what do they do? I heard some funny thing. Maybe golf or NASCAR that all of a sudden got a ton of movie advertising. <laughs> like, Can you imagine the dichotomy of that? You're literally there and it's people like, shh, he's lining up his putt. <laughs> if he sinks this putt, if he birdies this putt, he will win the jacket. He'll be wearing the green jacket. And he putts and people cheer. You go, we'll be right back after this word from the Avengers. <laughs> yeah! The screaming, the smashing, the cacophony. Yeah, you're right. I'm not quite sure that's the best mix. The movies and golf. Yeah, there was some, what was it? Maybe tennis too, but basketball's been back on, right? But I guess also with their TV shows, aren't they doing a lot of movie advertising on the TV shows they own? Because they own both. Yes, I think there's been a lot of TV advertising for TV shows on the sports as well. But no, but are they advertising movies on television shows? Oh, probably. I, I wonder about that. Yeah, because they own both products, yeah. Probably a big, like, Oprah Winfrey... I don't know if there's any movie ads, but that would have been... I'm sure they would. I'm sure there would. No, I mean, that's a ratings bonanza. Yeah, they need money. What's one thing you hope to see when we come out of this? You want to see what, from your perspective, as covering this movie industry exhibition distribution for The Hollywood Reporter, what would you like to see when we come back? I'd love to see like people walking the can red carpet again. I'd like to see a movie premiere that's not virtual. The tradition. Yeah, I think the tradition and seeing people interacting. I think it'd be nice to go to the Beverly, I don't know, some swanky Beverly Hills restaurant and see studio heads at lunch. You know, just some sort of normalcy. Business as usual. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much. Thank you so much for tracking me down. Stay safe. Stay safe. Pamela McClintock, senior film writer at The Hollywood Reporter. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. 
You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.